Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 6.08 a.m. Central, what, Standard Time? It's the 12th of January, 2021. Oh yeah, baby. Oh yeah, this is episode 344 of Bitcoin and let's dive right in with this one. The first Bitcoin transaction was sent to Hal Finney 12 years ago. It is this day in Bitcoin history. Sharwa Mall was going to tell us about it from decrypt.co. And um, honestly, or obviously rather, this was written sometime earlier this morning because it did happen today. Today marks the 12th anniversary of the first ever Bitcoin transaction sent from one person to another. At the receiving end was computer scientist Hal Finney, who got the 10 Bitcoin from Satoshi Nakamoto. 10 Bitcoin? Jesus. Holy shit. Who got the 10 Bitcoin from Satoshi Nakamoto, the network's mysterious pseudonymous creator? The transaction on the now historic date proved that Bitcoin as a money network did indeed work in reality and set the foundation for its future growth. It came a week after Nakamoto started running the Bitcoin network on their computing system. Apart from receiving the first Bitcoin transaction, Finney, known for his work in advanced cryptography systems, before succumbing to a rare disease in 2014, was also the second person to run Bitcoin. Some even conspire that he was Nakamoto, a theory that does the rounds even today. Quote, I mined block 70-something, and I was the recipient of the first Bitcoin transaction which Satoshi sent 10 coins to me as a test. Finney wrote in a Bitcoin Talk forum post in 2009. The amount was worth next to nothing at the time, but at today's market prices, it is worth over $353,000. Finney was also one of the first individuals to put out a price prediction on Bitcoin. Yeah, and he did this really quickly too. Uh, He estimated in a mail, which was initially lost, but later recovered to Nakamoto in 2009, that extrapolated the total worldwide household wealth, considering it to be between 100 and 300 trillion dollars with Bitcoin's 21 million supply, giving each coin a value of 10 million dollars. This is why I Bitcoin. And as if those first weren't enough, Finney also holds the distinction of making the first ever tweet referring to Bitcoin. It just said, running Bitcoin. And 12 years on, the network's still going strong. Oh, I had to drop the rhyme, bro. I had to drop the rhyme, didn't you? <clears throat> yeah, Hal Finney, I didn't come to know who Hal Finney was or any of this stuff until 2015. And by 2015, uh, Hal Finney had passed away. Um, he ends up being one of my, you know, like, the more you look into Hal Finney, the more you, you end up looking at how uh, honestly stupendous of a person this guy was i mean by the end of it he was basically a quadriplegic 
Uh, it's like a, some kind of form of multiple sclerosis or uh, or uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. It's it's a variant, but it's it was really bad, and it came on him really really fast. And having a mind like that locked up into a body that doesn't work is one of the saddest things uh, I can imagine. Same thing happened to Stephen Hawking, and he he really did have uh, straight up Lou Gehrig's disease. And it did the same to him, but he was trapped in that body that did not work for decades. Decades. In fact, they, they thought he was going to die like 30 years before he actually died. <clears throat> it just goes to show the power of the human spirit. Now, speaking of human spirit, when you piss humans off, they have a tendency to do shit. Uh, sometimes they just flat-ass leave. If, if you harangue somebody enough on a daily basis and it's constant and it's constant and it's constant at what point does the straw break the camel's back well we saw that happen over the weekend uh this entire situation with uh gab parlor twitter amazon you, you i mean the all the, the field of players should literally be lighting a candle or a flat ass fire under your ass now <clears throat> I have moved quite a bit of my attention for the time being over to Mastodon. Parlor is flat ass gone. Okay. If you are trying to connect to Parlor, you're done. All right. It's just, it's not there. I don't know if it's going to come back. However, Gab was able to come back by finding a host that is offshore of the United States. However, Gab is suffering from some ex pretty extreme slowdowns. So it's almost, in my opinion, it's not that it's unusable, but it's just, God, it's such a pain in the ass. It, it like it, it literally, in this case, it is not you, it's Gab. Okay. It's not, it has nothing to do with your internet connection. If you're trying to connect and you're wondering WTF, it ain't you. It, you could be on the shittiest, like dial up crap internet on the face of the planet and it still is not you it's gab <clears throat> parlor on the other hand is completely gone i mean i it's sunday night 12 o'clock struck and you were done so anyway um I'll, i'm seeing still a massive you know a major massive exodus into uh mastodon from twitter and honestly from, from a lot of other uh a lot of other mainstream social media sites. The exodus is so strong that I, I can, I literally cannot keep up with the amount of people that are following me. <clears throat> so there's a couple of things here about this. First, do not change your avatar. If you're coming over, if let's just take Twitter to Mastodon. If you're, if you're going to like dip your toes into Mastodon, please do the following. Don't change your avatar. Okay. Also, <clears throat> and I'll get to why, <clears throat> excuse me, early morning. Um, I'll get to why here in a second. Also, so don't change your avatar, but also your descriptions in your bio don't change anything. Word for word, keep it exactly the same. If you're looking at a situation where, hey, I can start fresh. And if you want to, hey, that's fine. I will not know who the fuck you are. Okay. And, and many other people won't either. And I think what, what this demonstrates is that humans are, we, our visual acuity is so strong that we gather probably 90% of all communications through our eyes. If you're, if you're stricken with blindness, I 
I feel for you. And I, I know that I, but I, I don't have any experience with blindness, so I don't know how to, I don't know how to navigate, help navigate you. If I did, I would, but I'm talking to the visually, to the sighted here. I rarely look at the actual name. This is just what I'm defaulting to. It's not because this is what I do because I'm forcing myself to. This is just the way shit works. I look at the picture of your avatar and I identify you with that picture. And I, I've had several you know, situations where just on Twitter over the last year, people have just flat ass changed their avatars. And I'm like, I don't know who the, I don't know who this person is. And then I have to go back and I have to find you and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's fine. Like I said, it's your choice. It's your account, your app. You do whatever the F you want to do with that shit. But if you want people to follow you, if you're trying to get back to your tribe, I highly recommend coming over and making your Mastodon look as much like your original Twitter account as possible, at least for your entry point so that people can go, oh, oh, I know that guy. I know that guy. I'm having real difficulty identifying my peeps from Twitter because they're changing their avatars as they come over to Mastodon. They're changing their bios. They're changing all kinds of stuff. Please, please, please be aware. Humans don't work that way. The chance, like you change your bio, you change your background uh, stuff, you change like like your your the avatar that you're using. The likelihood that somebody can recognize you on a different platform is almost impossible. Okay, it's almost non-existent. So keep that in mind. Also keep in mind there is a tweet here from uh, Crypto Thor at uh, Crypto T H the the number zero R. And he's got four good guides uh, for getting started into Mastodon, how it works, you know, what it does differently, how to choose instances and stuff like that. Um, So one of these is kevq.uk, getting started, let's see, what does it say? Uh, Getting hyphen started hyphen with hyphen mastodon forward slash that's kevq.uk getting started with mastodon he also has kevq.uk how does mastodon work that's how hyphen does hyphen mastodon hyphen work and then there's an elevator pitch uh for mastodon over at codesections.com forward slash blog forward slash mastodon hyphen elevator hyphen pitch um, I will try to tweet this uh, particular tweet out because it's got some really good information. If you're trying to figure out what the hell local versus federated uh, timelines are, if you're having difficulty navigating the interface because it is a little bit different, <clears throat> uh, look into all this. But one thing that I can tell you right now, if you want to get the most out of Mastodon, you need to go into your settings. All right. I'm telling you, man, you need to go do this. You need to go into your settings. Um, and when you get to your settings, you need to go to, let's see, where is it? Uh, uh, hold on for a sec. Yeah, in under preferences, okay? Un- and under preferences, under appearance, there is, one of the very first things at the top is advanced web interface and a checkbox that says enable advanced web interface. Do yourself a huge favor and check that and it will give you multiple columns so that you can see your local timeline your home you know basically your home which is 
you and everyone you follow, um, the federated timeline, um, like, uh, oh, and your notifications, and you can see them all in separate columns all at the same time. <clears throat> it looks a lot like TweetDeck if you're a TweetDeck user, so that really will enhance your experience. But again, I'm begging you guys, begging you, don't change your avatars. It's causing uh, us and uh, uh, quite a few other people a fair amount of problems. I, I'm so if I'm not following you back, it's not, it's nothing personal. It's because I can't recognize you. All right, <clears throat> and I'm doing my best because the inflow is is pretty hot right now. So anyway, anyway, uh, let's get back into the news as Bitcoin regains lost ground. Options traders bet on $52,000 move by late January. This is Amkar Godbull writing for Coindesk.com. Says at the press time uh, price, or sorry, at the press time price of 35580 Bitcoin is up nearly 16% from the low of 30305 observed on Monday. Even so, the number one cryptocurrency by market value is still well short of the weekend highs above 40,000. Some traders, though, have been buying January 29th expiry call options at 52,000, and 72,000 strike prices on the Darabit exchange. A call option gives the buyer the right, but not the obligation to buy the underlying asset at a predetermined price on or before a specific date. A call option is a bullish bet while a put option is a bearish bet. A total of 4,000 contracts have been bought at the $52,000 strike in the past 24 hours, according to data provided by Swiss-based analytic firm Levitas. The $64,000 and $72,000 strike call options show buying volume of $32,50 and $2,000 respectively. Wow, man. Theoretically, the purchase of the $52,000 strike call is a bet that Bitcoin would rise above that level on or before January 29th, making the option in the money quote quotes are around that currently the three contracts are out of the money or otm with the spot price well below these strike prices and are trading at 0 0.045 bitcoin 0 0.026 bitcoin and 0 0.019 bitcoin respectively the deep otm options are relatively cheap and tend to gain a significant value if the price rally materializes yielding big returns on small investments. That's what we call asymmetry, bruh. As such, seasoned traders with bullish price expectations often buy call options at higher strike prices. Therefore, the latest call option purchases at the 52,000, 64,000, and 72,000 strikes indicate bullish market sentiment. Other option market indicators are making a similar call. The one, three, and six month put Q, sorry, <coughs> let's try this again. <clears throat> The one, three, and six-month put call skews, which measure the cost of puts relative to calls, remain entrenched into negative territory. That's a sign of call options or bullish bets drawing higher demand than puts. According to analysis, on-chain fundamentals remain strong and the path of least resistance is to the higher side. Quote, don't let short-term BTC price action distract you. Fundamentals are strong. The network is healthy. Zoom out and hodl, says Raphael Schultz Kraft, CTO at the blockchain analytics firm Glassnode. <laughs> However, 
The cryptocurrency may have a tough time charting a quick move to fresh record highs above the peak of $41,962 reached on Saturday. Given the United States dollar index is witnessing a recovery rally, weakening Bitcoin and gold's appeal in the market. Yeah, gold is not looking all that great right now, but, you know, Peter's going to do what Peter's going to do. <clears throat> How monetary policy and dollar devaluation are driving institutional interest in Bitcoin is next up by Jan Wurstenfeld at BitcoinMagazine.com. He's writing this one sometime yesterday. In the second half of 2020, institutional investors increasingly started to show an interest in Bitcoin. More and more investors have announced that they have allocated part of their cash reserves or a share of their fund toward Bitcoin. The most prominent one certainly has been, well, Michael Saylor with his company MicroStrategy holding 70,470 Bitcoin as of right now. Another important development has been Mass Mutual Life Insurance Company converting a share of its fund into Bitcoin. <clears throat> Particularly, the latter example has given much more legitimacy to Bitcoin as an institutional investment asset. An ins insurance company that deems Bitcoin safe enough to invest in is a game changer, as this industry is usually known for its very conservative investment strategies. Yeah, you'd have to if you're going to be writing insurance policies off of it. The inflow of institutional money appears to have become a self-reinforcing mechanism. Grayscale's Bitcoin trust alone has increased its Bitcoin holdings by more than 66% from 365,000 on June 9th to 607,000 Bitcoin on December 28th, 2020 per Bybit.com. Well, that's the one that's reporting on those numbers. Um, in an appearance on CNBC Squat Box, Michael Sonnenschein, Grayscale's managing director, said that it sees inflows that are six times that of last year on its platform and that the type of investor, investors have changed. Some of the largest investors are now investing with Grayscale, and these investors are holding Bitcoin for the medium to long term. While a domino effect for institutional investors can be observed, what is the underlying <clears throat> underlining push for that? Well, why do these investors see the need to convert some of their capital into Bitcoin in the first damn place? Saylor often talks about the need to convert a company's cash reserves into Bitcoin to protect its balance sheet against the dwindling value of fiat currencies, and particularly the U.S. dollar that has de uh, depreciated against other currencies over this entire year. In a previous article, I have found that USD Google searches are strongly related to Bitcoin searches, and I have hypothesized that the impact of the dollar devaluation is more directly felt by people and that this leads to an increase in Bitcoin purchases. The USD has lost value against other major currencies in general. This can be seen in the USD index or the DXY, which includes a basket of the following six exchange rates. The Euro, the uh, Japanese Yen, the British, uh, Great British Pound, the Canadian Dollar, uh, the USD SEK, and the USD CHF. I mean, like China, I guess. <clears throat> One reason for that potentially is the unprecedented monetary expansion by the Federal Reserve Bank. However, not only the Fed expanded its balance sheet during this year, central banks like the ECB did as well, and other factors are at play too, which is why it makes sense to look at the DXY, which is affected by all of these factors. 
Changes in the world's monetary landscape are an essential factor as well as outlined in the excellent article, The Fraying of the United States Global uh, Currency Reserve System by Lynn Alden. Due to this, it makes sense to look at the DXY development vis-a-vis or vis-a-vis the Bitcoin price. Before looking at the USD index relationship with Bitcoin's price, let us first examine the Fed balance sheet and the Bitcoin price. The relationship is shown in figure one. The Bitcoin price and the size of the Fed balance sheet seem to be somewhat related. However, the price does not directly follow the balance sheet expansion during the first half of the year. This can also be seen in the correlation coefficients in Table 1. <clears throat> table is given below. Over the whole period, both variables are correlated by 46.65%, whereas in the first half of the year, it is only 6.2% and has strongly increased in the second half of the year to 86.41%. A very similar picture emerges for the money stock M1 and M2 over this year. While M1 has increased by over, God, 65%, M2 increased by nearly 26 The relationship of the monetary variables and Bitcoin price seem to exist, but does not appear to be as strong as the DXY. Over the whole year, the value of the DXY shows a strong negative relationship with the Bitcoin price. It is much higher compared to the other two variables. This makes sense if we consider the fact that the U.S. dollar has not only lost value against other currencies due to monetary policy, but also due to other mechanics at play. That is why the USD's dwindling value against other currencies seems to be the more relevant variable. All right, so, yeah, uh... The, the money printing that has occurred is doing nothing but alerting people to the fact that the forest is on fire. And I was thinking about this yesterday. If you're holding USD, whether in your hands or in a bank account or, or in your retirement account or anything like that, my thought is, is that generally speaking, given the, the landscape that we see from all this, those dollars are in danger. So if the forest, if, if dollars are made of wood, and they kind of are because they're like, if you're thinking of like physical dollars, they're made out of cotton, right? Which is like cellulose and lignin, right? Same shit as in wood. It's, it is. Cotton is the same shit as in wood. It's just softer and fluffier, right? <clears throat> but it catches on fire. If you're forest, if you're in the middle of a forest fire and everything around you is burning and you're holding a whole shit ton of stuff that can also burn, you're going to drop it. At one point or another, you're going to drop it because you don't want to catch on fire yourself. You just want to get out. And I think a lot of people, I mean, if if the correlation between the Google searches of the dollar and Bitcoin hold true, as this person is saying, then people are looking at not only what is Bitcoin, but they're also looking at what the hell's going on with the dollar. Those two things together... Yeah, you might want to think about uh, avoiding that shit. And speaking of avoidance, let's talk about avoiding the nuclear Bitcoin option. BTC Times, Obi Nwosu is writing this one sometime this morning. <clears throat> Quote, I don't know what weapons they'll use to fight World War III, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. End quote. 
Einstein made this prediction during a very specific period of paranoia brought by the ever-present threat of, quote, the bomb. But he was right not to identify the weaponry used to fight the next world war because, as it turns out, the next global conflict would not be military but economic. This conflict isn't theoretical. In fact, it has been bubbling under for decades. And if that sounds like catastrophizing for clicks... Let me point out that the war is more than bombs, bullets, and body counts. It is the use of force, including economic pressure, to compel our opponents to bend to our will. The war that's been fought for some decades now is the political and economic maneuverings to promote and, in the dollar's case, maintain a fiat currency's position as an international reserve currency. The benefits of being a reserve currency are legion. Ooh. With the world, when the world holds its reserves in dollars, the United States enjoys exorbitant privilege. Oh, my white privilege! Because it purchases imports using the dollar, it never has to face a balance of payment crisis. Being an international reserve currency is a self-reinforcing virtuous cycle, as the economist Barry Itchengren pointed out, whereas the U.S. can create $100 with one stamp of the printing press, other nations have to create $100 of goods or value to earn the same amount. No wonder the yuan and the euro are so keen to replace the, quote, almighty dollar. The character of this conflict is changing, though, as fiat currencies cede ground to digital money like Bitcoin, with the likes of Morgan Stanley predicting that Bitcoin is well on its way to becoming a global international reserve currency. We face a new scenario where Bitcoin is both the battlefield and the weaponry of this new war. Now, I'm going to pause to let you guys know that if you haven't heard me rant earlier about Bitcoin is the weapon, well, go. you can go back. I've talked on several occasions that Bitcoin is more than what we see. And one of the things that I see is that it's not money, it's a weapon. It just happens to not be a weapon that, that fires bullets. It's a completely, it's like, it's like an EM weapon or an electromagnetic weapon. It's think of it like a, a like a, oh, what do they call it? Uh, an energy, a directed energy weapon, like a laser beam or a blaster or some shit like that you see out of freaking Star Wars. That's what I look at Bitcoin as. And the thing about it is, is that there's one Bitcoin, yet there's so many instances of it. It's like having an arsenal. My node is sitting right in front of me and it's running. That's a weapon. It draws its weaponness from the Bitcoin network. Okay, just keep that shit in mind. All right, don't think of it as just money or a store of value or a medium of exchange or all the crap that Roger Ver talks about. <clears throat> it's a weapon. It is also a weapon. And it manifests itself as a weapon on everybody's desktop, everybody who runs a node, everybody who's got their wallet connected to their own damn node has an instance of the weapon that is Bitcoin. Please keep that in mind. That is going to become important. So here's how it could play out. If any one actor manages to acquire over 50% of the Bitcoin network's hash rate, it could prevent new transactions from gaining confirmations, enabling them to prevent whichever transactions they liked. They could even reverse subsequent transactions so they could, quote, double spend individual coins. Just as nuclear bombs unleash an intense burst of heat and radiation, the next world war will be fought with energy weapons. 
the difference is this time the energy expended will be directed toward Bitcoin or sorry, mining Bitcoin to gain control over the whole network. Satoshi Nakamoto's Bitcoin white paper considered the situation to be impossible since no single actor could ever acquire such a large proportion of the hash rate. But even as Bitcoin's price rises to ever more dizzying heights, many have noted that attaining 51% of its total network hashing power still appears to be within the reach of a rich and powerful nation like China or the United States. And if that sounds alarming, let me straight say straight out that we won't ever see a thermocurrency war. Let me say that again, thermocurrency war. And for exactly the same reasons as the baby boomers and Generation X weren't wiped out by a nuclear holocaust. If any single entity gained control of the Bitcoin network, they would gain such enormous privilege, directly or indirectly, that it's in every other actor's interest to prevent that from happening. To prevent the nuclear option of one party holding complete control, we will see national and supranational actors defending Bitcoin's central ethos of decentralization by ramping up their own mining capabilities, preserving a balance of power. Instead of mutually assured destruction, the biggest deterrent to a hostile economic takeover will be mutually assured consumption, not an arms race, but a deadlock competition to mine more orange gold than the enemy. While I grew up in the shadow of the Cold War, the biggest story of my childhood wasn't Armageddon, but rather its prevention. Rational actors stepped back from the precipice because they knew that there was no winner from unleashing hell. It'll be the same with Bitcoin. One day soon, we'll see nations and central banks investing in Bitcoin and the Bitcoin network to protect what is destined to be the first truly independent world reserve asset. And this, honestly, and I know this this is going to sound terrible, but all of the people that I see that are bitching and moaning like the head of the ECB, um, like all the people that are in the United States Congress, not all of them, but so many of them that are like the chair people and they're all really old and they're all really going to die and it's all really going to happen within, within our lifetime. And as they die, they because without any other thing that was external to the system as it stands today, they would literally just be replaced by somebody who's exactly the same as them. And that's what's been going on. But for the first time, there is an externality that represents a different fucking way. It boils down to the people that are going to take those places of power. And I I just feel sick even saying that because it shouldn't be that way, but it is. Okay, I'm a realist. Will they take the chance to say, you know, we could have something completely different? And that would happen in all nations because it doesn't matter what nation you're in. The people that are in power of your nation are probably in their 70s or, God forbid, in their 80s. And they just can't learn new tricks. So... I don't know what's coming next, but I do know that I'm not worried about a 51% attack on the Bitcoin network. Now, if I was holding something stupid like Bcash, I'd be very concerned about that shit because their hash rate is is pathetic. And all the rest, all the rest of the cryptocurrencies are pathetic, okay? It, they just don't hold the power. And speaking of power, we have lizard people that are on the move. Blockstream adds six members to Liquid Federation. Peter Chawaga is writing this for BitcoinMagazine.com and says... Today, Blockstream has announced the addition of six members to Liquid, its federated Bitcoin sidechain. These members include Bitcoin wallet apps Coinos, institutional digital asset custody provider Kamainu, 
privacy infrastructure developer NIM Technologies, liquid swap infrastructure provider Sideswap, Bitcoin native financial services provider Vulpum Ventures, and fintech-focused broker-dealer Watchdog Capital. Quote, with these new additions, there are now a total of 59 members in the Liquid Federation, including cryptocurrency exchanges, trading desks, infrastructure providers, gaming companies, and digital security services, according to a press release shared with Bitcoin Magazine. So, there you go. The Federate, Liquid Federation is, is also growing. Uh, I referenced lizard people. If you don't know the history of all the FUD that has been done and conducted over on our to try to get people to go to stupid forks like Bcash and BSV is that they are always saying that Blockstream is filled with lizard people and they're trying to control the network. It's complete bullshit. Please don't believe that stuff. No, Bitcoin is not in a bear market. Thomas M. writing this for btctimes.com sometime this morning says, after Bitcoin casually broke its 2017 price record of $20,000 a month ago and went on to climb as high as 41K, it reignited the interest of various media outlets that had either declared it dead after 2017 or simply moved on to more sensational topics. Yet, in late 2020, it became apparent that many, or too many, that Bitcoin is back. Again, it never leaves. I don't know why you even... BTC Times, you should be ashamed of saying that. As institutional investors increasingly look or took notice of the asset for its gold-like properties and capabilities as an inflation hedge, Bitcoin made its grand comeback in media publications around the world. Thus, it is its first notable drawback since the recent upward journey has not gone unnoticed following a drop from over 41,000 to 31,000 in one single day. CNN Business on Monday published an article titled Bitcoin plunges more than 20% in three days. It's now in a bear market. At least they didn't call it dead. While the headline sounds worrying, the article itself uh, reads less negative. It mentions the rally that preceded the drop and features a quote saying that the bull run is not over yet. Yet the author writes that since Bitcoin dropped 20%, it is now in a bear market. But is it though? Traditionally, drawbacks of 20% or more amid investor fear and pessimism are identified as bear markets. While Bitcoin did drop 24% within a day, it has gained 200% in the last three months alone. It should be hard to find investors that feel fear and pessimism at the sight of the recent Bitcoin price chart. If a continued downtrend were to follow, was to follow the dip, implying a bear market would be more reasonable. At press time a day later, however, Bitcoin has already recovered to $36,000, which means that it is now only 12% down from its previous price of around $41,000. Moreover, Bitcoin is anything but traditional, and as such, there's little use of applying traditional metrics, which very obviously don't work with an asset that has historically proven to be very volatile during its 2017 bull run, Bitcoin experienced multiple drops of over 20%. In September that year, it dropped 25%. In November, 26%. In December, 27%. Man, following those three bear markets, Bitcoin went on to rally to an all-time high just shy of 20K. Unlike stocks that trade exclusively on regulated platforms during set times of the day, Bitcoin trades globally around the clock and is driven by free market movement. Bitcoin is widely known for its volatility, and anyone who has been watching the price for any amount of time knows that large swings are just part of the deal. With the Bitcoin Within the Bitcoin space itself, the drop left users largely unimpressed, with many seeing a buying opportunity rather than reason to worry. 
Uh, in fact, long-term Bitcoin hodlers are likely used to double-digit drawbacks, especially when they are followed by triple-digit rallies. Coin Corner marketing manager Molly Spears pointed out on Sunday that Bitcoin is up 343% in a year, 101% in a month, and 18% in a week. The only reason to worry about this dip is that you are not buying. <laughs> However, not everyone believes the price will recover. Guggenheim, oh, this idiot. Guggenheim CIO Scott Minard called a local top at 35K and wrote that it was, quote, time to take some money off the table as Bitcoin's parabolic rise is unsustainable in the near term. Well, geez, Scott, where are you going to take your money off the table to? So, honestly, literally, what? What are you going to take it to? Real estate? Gold, oil, futures, U.S. God forbid, U.S. Treasury bonds. <laughs> Where are you going to take it, Minard? Notably, Minard stated in December that the investment firm's fundamental work shows that Bitcoin should be worth about four hundred thousand dollars. As always with Bitcoin, it might go up, down, or sideways. The Investors Podcast uh, co-founder Preston Pish took to historic reference points on Monday, sharing a chart from 2017 when Bitcoin often spent no more than a few days in correction territory before bouncing back. That is not to say Bitcoin will behave the same way this time. It remains to be seen what the market does next. Yeah, never use Bitcoin history to predict Bitcoin future. It's always a bad deal, man. But as Bitcoin's recent price developments have been driven by accelerating institutional demand that shows no sign of slowing down, many remain optimistic. In a tweet on Tuesday, Gemini co-founder Tyler Winklevoss reinforced the statement that there is huge institutional demand and most of it is silent. Ultimately, calling a bear market when Bitcoin drops 20% following a daily rally of over 200% makes little sense, unless, of course, it's for the purpose of clicks. So, there you go. Hey, guys, let's run the numbers. CNBC's futures and commodities. Uh, why the future? Because I'm up before the markets are, man. Oil is up. Holy shit. Oil is up one and a half percent. $53 buys you a barrel of West Texas Intermediate. $56.5 buys you a barrel of Brent, which is up 1.44%. Natural gas doing its stinky thing. It's up almost 4% to $2.85. Uh, gold is up half a point. <laughs> Yay, it's going to come in at 1860 bucks. Silver is up almost a full point. Platinum is up uh, two and two thirds of a point. Copper is up one and a half point. Indices, we're up across the board, but it seems a little meh. Uh, everything is up a quarter to possibly a half. So that's going to do it for that. Real money, $35,619.74 is the price I'm getting for Bitcoin right now. Will that be the high? We shall see. I know I got a low, and it's going to be over at, uh, looks like it's going to be at Bitfinex, $35,269. And indeed, $35,619 is the high price. 325,000 transactions performed in the last 24 hours it gives us about 13,500 transactions on average per hour with only 715,000 BTC being sent in the last 24 hours. Now, when I went away for Christmas, I was seeing I was normally seeing 2.3 million BTC, 1.5, 1.8 
You know, I've been, I, this is the first time that I've gone two days in a row where I'm sub 1 million BTC being sent. What does that tell you? Tells me liquidity crisis, but I'll just leave that there. There is 29,000 BTC being sent on average per hour with the average transaction value being 2.19 BTC and the median, holy shit, the median transaction value is 0.033 BTC, which is the highest I've ever seen at 1,000 $182 worth of USD value. Block times are getting back up there, nine minutes and 36 seconds per block. We have 1.1 BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis and a whopping 162.5 BTC being taken in fees over the last 24 hours. We have had, let's see. <laughs> we have had a small drop in hash rate of almost a percent. We are at 159.75 exahashes per second. Oh, God. I just don't want to read the shitcoin stuff. It's just horrible. Except for Doge. Doge is seeing a drop. I guess its market is cooling off. 0.0087. And with 30,000 transactions over the last 24 hours, it beats no one except Ethereum Classic. Interesting. Litecoin sitting at... 66,000 transactions for the day and Bcash, oh God, back up to 114,000 transactions per day. So irrational exuberance over there in shitcoin land. We have 65,000 transactions that are going to have to onboard to 85 blocks to get rid of them. Uh, we have, I have the ability to buy 18.7 ounces of gold with one single Bitcoin right now. And Bitcoin has captured 5.38% of gold's total market cap. The total market capitalization of Bitcoin at this point is $650 billion with 18,598,206.65 BTC in circulation. And let's look at what's happening on Lightning. 1,050.73 BTC is in the Lightning network. That gives us about $36.7 million worth of USD capacity, running over 8,250 nodes, representing 36,282 channels. Uh, percentage of the Tor capacity of the Lightning Network stands at 52.8%, and that is 554.65 BTC in the Tor side of the Lightning Network, and that is being held over 2,974 nodes. And again, I'm not sure, how do you see a Tor node? If it's truly a torn node, I, I don't know, whatever. That's going to do it for vitals. Welcome to part two of the snooze you can use. We'll start off with baby or diaper wearing baby trader cries foul as $30,000 Bitcoin price dip ends in biggest ever daily recovery. William Suberg tells us about it for from Cointelegraph. A surge in excess of 20% accompanies the 12 hours after Bitcoin bounced off $30,000, but questions over the events are mounting. Of course they are. It's conspiracy, dude. BTC saw its most successful recovery in history on January the 12th after testing $30,000 support. But market participants are already crying like babies. Oh, I'm sorry, I spelt suspicious wrong. Data from Cointelegraph Markets and Trading View followed Bitcoin as it swiftly bounced off of lows of $30,250 $30, late on Monday to seal 20% gains in just over 12 hours. 
coming even more quickly than its prior fall over the weekend. The comeback marks Bitcoin's best daily performance ever, both in US dollar and percentage terms. The numbers will be confirmed once the daily candle closes with press time levels nearing local top of 36,600. No sooner was the recovery underway, however, did concerns appear over the authenticity of recent market movements. Popular market analyst and Cointelegraph contributor Flip Flip argued that the strength of the rally belied what was tantamount to market manipulation, thanks specifically to exchange outages and unofficial advice from asset manager Guggenheim to sell at lower price levels. Quote, amazing what's possible when you can bid the market. Part of a series of tweets reads, quote, it's hard not being a conspiracy theorist when two major exchanges become inoperable and Guggenheim tells people to sell the dip when they aren't even filled yet. Ooh, I don't know, man. Maybe he's got a good point here. Uh, Let's continue. As Cointelegraph reported, Guggenheim CIO Scott Minard advised uh, investors that it was time to take some money off the table. For major exchange Coinbase and Kraken, meanwhile, the publicity headache continued. As Bitcoin's drop accelerated from 38,000 toward the low, both trading platforms saw now characteristic outages causing traders to lose control of orders. The knock-on effect, statistician Willy Woo subsequently warned, impacted the entire market and even made the price dip worse. Quote, spot market sell-off started around 38K when Coinbase partially failed, not registering buys, causing its price to go $350 lower than others. This pulled down the index price that futures exchanges used to calculate leverage funding, wreaking a bearish havoc on speculative markets, he explained on Monday. Quote, unlike previous crashes in the past two years, where overleveraged markets led by trader liquidation, this one started on spot markets, then was greatly amplified by a single exchange partly partially failing, yet did not turn itself off for the good of the ecosystem, end quote. Wu also queried why futures exchanges did not remove Coinbase from their listings in order to steady the fallout. Customers appeared little concerned, as noted by software developer and commentator Vijay Boyapati. Coinbase volumes were over 101,000 BTC in the 24 hours to early Tuesday, something which he estimates led to profits of up to $175 million. Quote, as much as I dislike Coinbase, their IPO is going to be a major catalyst for the entire market when it happens, he said in an accompanying comment. Quote, a lot of capital from the stock market is going to flow into the Bitcoin market in this way. And I, you know, honestly, there's some, you know, I was calling them babies, but honestly, there's, there could be something to this. But you'd have to prove conspiracy. You'd have to prove that Scott Maynard was on the phone with Jesse Powell and that idiot from Coinbase where they're all rubbing their hands together in a little room before you can actually say that officially. Coinbase always does this. Kraken is just beginning to start going offline due to to heavy volume because their shit's growing too. These are growing pains. So my reference to babies actually still holds insofar as, hey, babies grow. And when they do, they're in pain. What are you going to do? It's just like if if you have kids, you know this shit. Institutional investors are unfazed, however, by the Bitcoin price crash. This is Robert Stevens writing for Decrypt.co, January the 11th. In fact, that was yesterday. 
Institutional investors are widely perceived to be responsible for Bitcoin's bull run, which lifted the price from $10,500 to $40,000 last week. But what goes up can come down. So around the time Scott Minard, CIO of Guggenheim Investments, the hedge fund that moved uh, $530 million into Bitcoin tweeted that Bitcoin's parabolic rise is unsus unsustainable in the near term. The price did drop all the way down to $30,000. <clears> what say Minard's contemporaries whose confidence in digital gold drew droves of investors? Well, Anthony Scaramucci, also known as the Mooch, Trump's one-time and short-lived communications director, who is the driving force behind the Skybridge Bitcoin Fund for accredited investors, tweeted that he was all in on Bitcoin, especially on this dip. Nick Carter, chronic Bitcoin bull and founder of Castle Island Ventures, disclosed after the crash that neither money nor the prospect of losing it brought him happiness. <laughs> he tweeted that he felt nothing at 40K and I continue to feel nothing. Maybe I'll feel something at 100,000, huh? But after watching Bitcoin plunge 50,000 or 50% 50 to 3K in 24 hours in an apparently mature market last year, nothing phases me anymore, he continued. Others Decrypt spoke to are also nonplussed by the crash. Eric Wall, CIO of Arcane Assets, said it was just noise. Quote, I'd feel concerned if we dropped below 18 or 16,000, he said. Unlike Carter, Wall has felt something. He was overcome with euphoria when Bitcoin hit $30,000. And Wall thinks that the bull run is set to continue. Quote, zooming out, the fact that Bitcoin can crash to 30 k is so bullish it's hard to overstate. He said, in other words, since the asset was worth less than 20000 barely a month ago, this is a good problem to have. Wall continues, quote, there's a fundamental phenomenon going on where Bitcoin is getting realized as a real asset class comparable to gold. That's a trend that has only just been kicked in motion. Denis Vinokurov, head of research at Bequant, a crypto prime brokerage that services institutional investors, dodged all questions about his feeling. He told Decrypt, quote, Crypto, oh, I hate that word. Crypto native funds are usually accustomed to spikes in volatility. Moreover, he said animal spirits are well and alive as his customers bought the dip. Institutions and corporations appear to be unfazed by this elevated volatility, he said. What will it take to puncture these men's heart, which they so stolidly pretend to be forged from steel? I don't know, maybe a fucking nuclear blast is probably what's going to take. Unless you're a cripple head, because BACT has no plans to support XRP, says its CEO, Helen Parts. Tell us all about it from Cointelegraph. And this was this morning. BACT, one of the largest cryptocurrency companies in the United States, will not support cripple or XRP as part of its further product development, according to the CEO. On Jan 11th, back CEO Gavin Michael sat down with Axios, uh, Axios RE, uh, colon cap podcast. That's a terrible name, guys. Podcast to discuss the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets. Michael declined to comment on whether the company decided to stay away from XRP due to Ripple's legal issues sparked by a lawsuit from the SEC. Uh, it's a, he says, quote, just not on our platform. He's, he added this, we're entering the crypto space through Bitcoin, and that was our first currency we've made available. We have others that are scheduled to come on board as part of the product development, but XRP is not available, end quote. Michael's remarks on XRP followed the official announcement on Back's plan, Back's 
plans to go public. On January the 11th, the Intercontinental Exchange, the operator of the New York Stock Exchange and the owner of BACT announced a merger deal with VPC Impact Acquisition Holdings to allow BACT to launch on stock markets. Meanwhile, Ripple is fighting the SEC's $1.3 billion lawsuit brought against the firm in late December. On January the 8th, Ripple CEO Brad Garlinghouse strongly denied the SEC's unproven allegations and claimed his firm is on the right side of the facts and history. Ooh, when you start hearing CEOs use kind of like historical types of rhetoric, you, you might want to punch out. If, you've, if you're holding a bag of XRP, just get rid of it. Don't, you don't, that way you don't have to worry about any of the rest of this shit. In the midst of Ripple's legal problems, many crypto companies have decided to delist the shit. I mean, XRP. On January the 6th, crypto wallet provider and trading platform Blockchain.com announced it was removing XRP following in the steps of Coinbase, Binance.us, OKCoin, and others. However, some companies like Uphold preferred to keep the shitty ass coin on their platform until the SEC lawsuit is resolved. Yeah, that means you're in on the deal and you're probably going to go down with them. Oh, God. <clears throat> okay. Now, that whole backed deal, um, there's a little bit more to it. However, the word crypto is going to be used. I'm just giving you fair warning. Eye-popping projection for $3 trillion crypto market underpins that backed deal we were just talking about. And this is Bradley Kuhn writing for Coindesk sometime yesterday. Backed published the estimate as part of an investor presentation released on Monday in connection with this new plan to go public via a merger with Victory Park Capital. That's that VPC thing. A special purpose acquisition company backed is majority owned by the ICE or Intercontinental Exchange Incorporated, which owns the New York Stock Exchange. The deal would give backed an enterprise value of about $2.1 billion. The underlying assumptions behind the transaction shows just how bullish investors, entrepreneurs, and financial executives have become over the past year on the fast-paced digital asset industry, especially after prices for Bitcoin, which is the only thing that matters in this space. The largest cryptocurrency quadrupled in 2020. Just last week, the industry's total market capitalization surpassed $1 trillion for the first time though a swoon over the past few days in prices for Bitcoin and other digital assets has since trimmed the total value of about 300 or sorry, $931 billion, according to the website CoinGecko. BAT currently runs a market for cryptocurrency derivatives, including Bitcoin futures, but in March, the company plans to release a new consumer application that could allow users to manage digital assets and use them for spending and peer-to-peer payments alongside cash and reward miles. Honestly, do you even want your miles anymore? With shit like Fold and Strike cards coming out? Is is miles even a thing anymore? Uh, whatever. Quote, it's these shift that we, shifts that we are leveraging for the benefit of both customer and merchants, truly unlocking a massive market by empowering the monetization of digital assets. Gavin Michael, former head of technology for Citigroup's Global Consumer Bank, told investors on Monday on a conference call, according to a transcript in the investor presentation, Bact estimated that its revenue net of transaction related expenses could grow by an average 75% per year to $515 million by 2025. The company is expected to turn cash flow positive by 2023. According to one slide in the investor presentation, Bact operates a massive, serviceable, addressable market. Ooh, M-S-A-M. 
MSAM, massive serviceable addressable market that was worth about $1.6 trillion in 2020, including $564 billion for the quote notional value of cryptocurrency. By 2025, the presentation estimates the company's overall target market would increase to $5.1 trillion, including $3 trillion in cryptocurrency. Here's the diagram of the presentation. I'd describe it, but just think of NGU technology. If you don't know what that is, you might want to research it. PayPal hits $240 million in crypto trading as markets recover. Uh, this is decrypt, hence why they use the term crypto. Uh, who's writing this thing? I don't know. Oh, it's Matt Husey, and he's writing this one today. Who would have thought a centralized Web2 payments company would be mentioned in the same sentence as Bitcoin recovery? That's exactly what happened yesterday as YayPal, no, I'm sorry, PayPal, revealed it had broken its previous trading volume record. Some $242 million worth of digital assets appeared to have moved through the platform, beating its previous high of $129 said a week ago. Yeah, last week. Wow. According to data provider Nomics, the data is derived by looking at the exchange numbers produced by iBit, the exchange PayPal has chosen to buy its crypto through. While we can't know for sure if this surge in volume was linked to PayPal, iBit's volume performance never climbed above 5 million in the year leading up to the PayPal announcement. Since then, its numbers have grown exponentially. As speculation continues, many have wanted to know whether the sudden surge in volume was due to investors cashing in or cashing out. That data hasn't been revealed. However, Bitcoin's recovery began in the evening of Monday and gained momentum as the news broke of PayPal's blockbuster day. At the time of writing, BTC's price is back above 35000 and appears to be recovering. In amongst the PayPal news, big Bitcoin holders appear to have spurred the recovery by buying the dip. So there you go. PayPal in the news, love them or hate them. They're apparently doing shit. I still don't know if you're able to take your stuff out of PayPal. Like if you buy Bitcoin through PayPal, I don't know if you can like move it to a different wallet. My estimation is no. I think PayPal's reaching at straws because if they allow people to, to draw it into a different wallet, then why the fuck do I need PayPal? I can just go buy on Cash App or River or Swan or something like that. And if they do allow payments on their network, then it's a different basket of worms. So I don't know what PayPal's doing, but apparently they hit a record. Whatever. Uh, in the short part of the news, Jim Coin founder is sentenced to 10 years for $147 million crypto scheme. This is why I Bitcoin. Danny Nelson, tell me why I Bitcoin. Jim Coin founder Steve Chin was sentenced Monday to 10 years in federal prison for defrauding tens of thousands of investors in one of the largest early cryptocurrency investment schemes. Oh, that's why I Bitcoin, so I don't have to worry about this bullshit. Oh, God, you know what? That's just going to do it for the morning roundup. Daily Trainwrecked is brought to you by Ilhan Omar, one of the, I guess she's a representative from Minnesota for the United States House of Representatives. And she reminds us that it's not possible to unite with people who want to overthrow our government. No unity without accountability. Pass it on. I wonder what her teachers in grade school taught her about the American Revolution.
you know what? Let's just, I don't want to go on a rant. I really don't. But what I do want to do is uh, see if I can't uh, uh, tell you tell you a joke. Dad Says Jokes tells us this. People are usually shocked when they find out that I am not a good electrician. Yep. Yeah, buddy, I forgot to do a joke in a train wreck yesterday. That just shows how out of practice I am. So please forgive me as I come back online because it doesn't apparently happen all at once. What are you going to do? Anyway, it is coming up on the hour. Um, I've had a good time. Remember, uh, visit uh, our sponsors. I don't have any sponsors myself, but we all have sponsors. And you know who they are. They're people like Crypto Cloaks. They're people like CoinKite. It's people like Bitblock Boom. It's people like uh, uh, Scott Sibley's Shamari uh, card game. And if you haven't, if you've got kids and you're not playing Shamari with them, what the hell are you doing with your life? It's a great card game. There are so many people. There's uh, who else is out there? Um, there's Art for Bitcoin. There is all manner of people in this space that are doing everything that they can to make this space their permanent home. God knows I'm trying to do that. I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.